It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Is the Gospel Obsolete? Coming up in this episode, Today's social media world says to speak your own mind, be your own person, and expect others to make room for you and respect your way. When you read the Gospel of Jesus, it teaches humility, morality, and discipleship. The two don't mix. Does the Gospel even belong in our world? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. It's good to be with you. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Romans ten fifteen. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. We live in an age of tremendous knowledge, phenomenal technology, and unprecedented freedom. On one hand, Ours is an age where the individual reigns supreme. I can decide what is right and wrong for me, and I can also expect others to make allowances for my conclusions. On the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us right from wrong and moral from immoral. It defines our treatment of others, how to live, and why we should live that way. The gospel is all about calling out a people for, the name, for God's name through Jesus and proclaiming that God's kingdom is in fact coming. With the way this world operates, does this gospel message and its way of life even matter? Are the personal freedoms of our present social order beyond the reach of the gospel? What is our mission regarding the gospel? Well, before we get to that, the gospel is a term that can mean two different things. First, it can simply refer to the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But more deeply, and what we're focused on, is the good news that Jesus preached. So again, what is our mission regarding the gospel? All right, what is our mission regarding these teachings of Jesus? Well, we're going to begin with some of Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended, ascended to heaven. So these are some, there, there's some from Matthew they're going to touch on, some from Luke. Let's start with Matthew, Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Rick, that word make disciples means to disciple, that is enroll as scholar. So Rick, an observation, Jesus is looking for thoroughly committed individuals for his cause. He's not looking for fans that cheer for him. Yeah, this is not a Jesus fan club at all. This is, and, and you know what, it's, it's great to love Jesus, but that's not what the calling is about. It's about much more than that. It's about enrolling as scholars to fulfill what he did the best way that you know how to do. So it tells us to make scholars 
of all nations. So what is this of all nations? What does that word specifically mean? It means a race as of the same habit that is a tribe, especially a foreign non-Jewish one. So the idea is make disciples, make followers, true followers from all different nations. It doesn't matter where they come from. The idea is that they should be all come in and follow in my footsteps. That's what Jesus is telling us here. So that's just before his ascension. Then a few other words from Luke in the same context before his ascension. Jesus spoke these words in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And Rick, that word proclaimed means to herald, as a public crier. So, Rick, it's not about converting, it's about proclaiming the good news. And that's such an important distinction. It, it, you know what, if you don't have a good track record of conversion, that's not the point, is it? Because Jesus is saying, proclaim, speak it out, give people hope, let them know this is about the kingdom, this is about my sacrifice, let them know. Everybody's not going to be responding, but that's okay. So when we look at these words, and, and right after that, Jesus ascends. And so we've got the words in Matthew and the words in Luke. There were several things instructed by Jesus in these two Gospels before he ascended. So Jonathan, there's, there's essentially five points here. Let's, let's go through what he, sum up, what he was telling them as he was to leave them for the last time. Well, Jesus would send God's Spirit to guide them in all they were being required to do. Right. The Spirit would come and guide them. Secondly, he told them to preach, to proclaim repentance and the remission of sins everywhere in all nations. And third, make disciples out of all nations, but start at home first in Jerusalem. And he was very specific about that, starting at home, and then the gospel would spread when the signal was given and it would be ready to spread. Fourth, he said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is a symbol, and this symbolizes the disciples' source of life, the Father, the source of redemption, the Son, and the source of their enlightenment, the Holy Spirit. Baptize to show what a Christian life actually looks like. Fifth, teach the words and commands of Jesus to these new followers. So wherever they come from, they need to learn exactly the same things you yourselves have learned and are learning. So we've got these final words of Jesus, and we're, you know, the question, is the gospel obsolete? Well, here's the message of the gospel that, that we're being shown. Now, the Apostle Paul, it doesn't just end there when Jesus ascended. The Apostle Paul reiterates this responsibility of the gospel by quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And he's going to be quoting that in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, and Jonathan, verse 15 was our theme scripture. So, so Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they will have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, 
How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So you've got that last section was the quoting of, from Isaiah 52.7. But the point is, you have to be out there because the gospel doesn't preach itself. It needs that representation. It needs disciples behind it. And this is part of, a big part of what the gospel mission is. The obvious mission here is to preach the gospel to the world. The not-so-obvious mission here is that this preaching, while bringing disciples, will not convert the whole world. And Rick, we addressed this in episode 1191, Are Christians Supposed to Convert the World? Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the Christian Questions app and enter the episode number into the search bar. That's 1191. Well, Rick, in our day, we as followers of Jesus are bringing the message that the world really doesn't like. So our question is, is the gospel obsolete? And that's an important question, because when you look around in the world and with the things that go on and the, the, the subject matter of conversation and the things that draw the most attention, you know what? The gospel is never part of any of that. So you got to ask yourself, well, what are we doing? I mean, it seems like it just will fall continuously and always on deaf ears. So doesn't mean, does that mean that we should just be, well, let's just be easy about it. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's work through that. Before we go any further with the mission of the gospel, let's take a look at just a few of the many things the gospel message does to transform those who are responsible for it. So this is what the gospel is supposed to do to and for us. We've got three scriptures, Jonathan, all the teachings of Jesus. First John 13, verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's a simple, straightforward lesson of serving one another. And the lesson really is, it doesn't matter how humble the service is. Do it. Just do the service. Because that's what Jesus did. Being a disciple, remember the scholar. We have to learn in a scholarly way how to wash one another's feet. I mean, <laughs> really, when you, when you put it together, you say, well, what's the scholarly way? Is to have the attitude of love and servitude. So that's, that's just one of many, many, many things that the gospel does for us. Next scripture, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And Jonathan, that love is that agape love, that selfless, benevolent love that we always talk about. And he's saying, this is, he, he's not saying, this is, you know, here's a good suggestion for you. Why don't you try this idea? He's saying, this is my commandment. You learn to love one another in a selfless way. What a, what a responsibility that is. And, and, and that's why we have to be footstep followers of Jesus. The third scripture, uh, Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, first, we talked about what we're supposed to do with the gospel. Secondly, what we're supposed to be. So the gospel transforms us so we can bring the message of transformation to others. Is this gospel obsolete? You know, we were asking that question. We're laying the groundwork of what the gospel is. It is the words, the teachings, the example of Jesus as, as exemplified not only in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in the rest of the New Testament. And we are, is that still relevant? That's the big question. Is the gospel relevant or is the gospel obsolete? Jonathan, what do we have? 
The gospel message is good news of hope to all. While the general population is too preoccupied with their own stuff to pay attention or even care, eternal hope and righteousness are always relevant. And, you know, that's such an important point. Internal hope, eternal righteousness, no matter what the circumstance, it has a relevance. Because here's a newsflash. Those things that last eternally are much more powerful than those things that are just transient in this world. We have to see it as relevant, and even though it doesn't seem to fit, it has a very, very distinct purpose in the world in which we live. So the gospel is a big message about a big plan that will bring big changes. The beauty is everyone will benefit. So the gospel message is relevant. What are some of the primary building blocks to make the gospel your own? Having the gospel message preached to you and applying its value on a personal level are two very different things. We will now begin to examine just three, just three of the potentially life-changing primary building blocks of the gospel. We're going to find that these building blocks are simple, they're sound, and they're just basically life principles. Our first primary building block of the gospel is humility. Plain, simple, genuine humility. Again? Humility. (laughs) Again. You know, it's such an interesting thing that we always come back to the same thing. Plain, simple, genuine humility. This is such an important aspect because it's hard to get to. And you think, okay, will you stop talking about humility? And they really, the response is, well, we would be, if we would be humble all the time, we could stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we fall down on this constantly. See, so here's the thing. Jesus is and always will be the primary example of what the gospel teaches us about humility. There's scriptures in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, that tell a major, major, give a major description of Jesus and his humility. Philippians 2, 6 through 9. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. All right, so, so let's look at the scripture for a moment here. God has Jesus with him. Jesus, the, the first and primary creation of, of God Almighty, and he's with him. And Jesus doesn't look at that as, as something to be grasped, and he is willing to empty himself of that entirely high and lofty spiritual position. He's willing to be completely emptied of it and become a man. That's what the scripture says. And then he becomes a man, and that's not enough. He becomes a man, and then he empties himself of his humanity by fulfilling the will of God and being willing to die for that will of God. So you can see that for us, Jonathan, it really comes down to we're supposed to empty ourselves just once. Well, Jesus did it twice from a a, a perspective we can't even fathom. That's how grand and glorious this is. So 
that's why it says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and exalted upon, and bestowed upon him a name that's above every name. It just gives you a sense of the grandeur of what his humility produced. That's our example. So Jesus empties himself for the purpose of doing God's just and righteous will, and he did it twice. Is this kind of humility common in our world, or is it obsolete? If you want to talk about something that's pretty much obsolete, this kind of humility pretty much fits the bill. You're not going to see this very many places, unfortunately, and it is kind of a sad thing. So we've got to be careful, And but this is the example. So therefore, it can't be obsolete for us because it's something that we're supposed to strive for. So for us to aspire to the humility of Jesus, we need to be focused on others. Why? Think about what Jesus did as it is prophetically described in Isaiah 6, 8 and 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, and this is God, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I, Jesus said, Here I am, send me. And he, God, said, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Oh, Rick, Jesus was sent to preach the good news, which would only be received by those who God was calling. The followers of Jesus have that same mission, and the message most likely will not be received. And, and that's why when Jesus is, is preaching the parable of the sower and the seed, he quotes this. He quotes that very prophecy. He says, seeing they will see and not perceive, hearing they will hear and not understand. So that prophecy, God sends him with that in mind, that this is what's going to happen. So we're not going to look at, we're not supposed to look at, when, we, when we're working with the gospel, the results. We're supposed to look at the proclamation, the effort, the humility, the, 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 the giving of the good news. Because you know what, Jonathan? It's just plain and simple, good news. But it has to be approached with genuine humility. Let's aspire to that genuine humility. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2 as a good example of how to apply it. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That is such a beautiful text. Bear one another's burdens, and that's how you fulfill the law of Christ. I mean, there, there, there's such power in that. So let, let's pause there, because the gospel requires humility from us. To wholeheartedly bear someone else's burdens— requires that selfless love that we talked about in the first segment briefly. It's expressed, this selfless love is expressed through empathy. Now, people don't talk about empathy so much, so let's define what empathy is. And to do that, we're going to have a doctor do that for us. Uh, her name is Dr. Uh, Ramani, and she is going to be, we're going to be visiting with her a few times here. She's speaking about narcissism. We'll define that in a few minutes, but here she's going to define empathy in two parts. So this will be the first of her two-part definition. First of all, it's important to understand empathy has two pieces. Number one, it's the piece of attempting to understand, reflect, and be present with the emotions or feelings of another person. Even if you're not experiencing them, 
and perhaps even if you don't necessarily agree with them, that you would understand that a person may be sad or angry or have some other emotional state. Rick, I know you do a lot of Christian counseling. What does empathy look like for you personally? You know, Jonathan, empathy is a powerful, powerful word that we don't use enough. And for me, it's learning three, three basic things. First, enough, first, first off, it's learning to be quiet enough to understand what somebody is telling you. Because we often think we know the answer or we want to finish the sentence. No, 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 no. Just be quiet enough, quiet enough to understand them. Secondly, be absolutely, sincerely interested in what they're saying. And that means you cut out all other distraction, you put down what you were doing, you turn away from the things that are going to draw your attention, and you focus exactly in on that person. And three, you know, in, in my experience, I've had the wonderful privilege of, of, of learning about things that have happened to people that I just have never had happen to me. And I can't sympathize with that because I don't know what it feels like. But in empathy, I can walk by their side as they attempt to deal with it. So if we're quiet enough and sincerely interested, we can then walk with them. To me, that's what empathy is, and it's transformative. It really, really, really is. So to be empathetic requires a humility that gives space for others' issues to occupy our hearts. Well, uh, you know, empathy in our world today, um, I think it depends. You know, when tragedy strikes the way it has in our recent school shootings, I would have to say, of course, the world has empathy. But in the political climate, there is very little empathy for each other's viewpoint. They just want to throw poisonous darts at the opposition. Since our society is so selfish in general, there is very little empathy. But there are still good people in this world. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, our world does have empathy, but it's kind of focused in very specific times and, and, and reasons. And, and you're right. You're right about that. It, it does have empathy. And so we are able to give people space in our hearts, but we don't necessarily keep it there. We don't keep them there. And, that, and that's part of the issue. So this, this basic humility is scarcely taught in our world. But you're right. It is present. And we can see it, especially with those tragedies that you look at, and everybody just stops and feels. And that's good. That's important. That's a way to begin a healing process. But the value of empathy is, is deeper than that. It goes further than that. And it's described in, in the scriptures. Let's go to James chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Or do you think that the scripture, now James is going to quote a scripture, speaks no purpose, and here's the scripture. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, which means conspicuous or haughty, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So for us to grab hold of empathy, we need to first be humble. 
that humility, and that's what this scripture is really focusing on. It's a profound view of humility. Humility requires submission to the right things. It requires resisting evil. It, it, just standing and saying, no, it doesn't come here. It will not live here. It, 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 it requires us drawing near to the good that God has presented to us and cleansing ourselves. Once we put this process in order, we can then focus on the second part of empathy. Because remember, the first part of empathy was being quiet, listening, entering into, observing the, the experiences of someone else, and, and having those experiences have an effect and let them be what they are. The second part of empathy, and we're going to go back to Dr. Romani for this as she talks about narcissism, uh, she's going to describe what we're supposed to do next. And here, Jonathan, is where most of us end up dropping the ball. But part two of empathy is being able to self-reflect on your impact on other people. So in the simplest example, empathy, the self part of empathy, the self-reflective part of empathy, is taking a minute before you react to someone to think about how your words and how your actions could affect somebody else. Now think about that. It's oftentimes we think, okay, I listened to them, I was quiet, and I'm, I'm appreciating. But now we need to think about what is my reaction going to do for them or against them? Am I going to be actually be helpful? I've been empathetic, but now is it going to be something positive or is it going to end up something negative? See, this self-reflection requires internal thinking. It requires internal observation, and sometimes that's difficult. This self-reflection is not easy or common. Narcissism, which seems to be a growing problem today, rebels against this self-reflection. So, Jonathan, let's look at an expert excerpt from WebMD to define what narcissism is. Narcissism is extreme self-involvement to the degree that it makes a person ignore the needs of those around them. While everyone may show occasional narcissistic behavior, true narcissists frequently disregard others or their feelings. They also do not understand the effect that their behavior has on other people. Signs of narcissism, sense of entitlement, manipulative behavior, need for admiration, arrogance, a lack of empathy. A lack of empathy is another sign of narcissism. This means that the narcissistic is unwilling or unable to empathize with the needs, wants, or feelings of other people. This also makes it difficult for them to take responsibility for their own behavior. So if somebody is narcissistic, they are so absorbed in themselves, they have a hard time applying empathy in a positive way. It's not to say they can't be empathetic. We're going to get into that. Dr. Ramani is going to get into that in a few minutes. But the idea is narcissism is that self-involvement and you know when we look at at, at, at where we are well while we're not let me let me set the, the groundwork here we're not suggesting that everyone in this world is a diagnosable narcissist we can't do that we have no qualifications to do that we're just simply suggesting that these tendencies of narcissism are overwhelmingly prevalent in our social media society because social media is usually about me presenting me to you so it's really all about me 
And that's where narcissistic attitudes, that self-absorption comes in and overtakes us and it skews our view of everything else. So the symptoms of this narcissistic approach are not new. And this is, this is important. They're not new. They're not unique to the present. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to, 21 to 25, really describe this in a very unique way. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored amongst them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So, Jonathan, this is pure and simple idolatry. This is putting the created before the creator and saying, I'm the most important thing. That's what this is. That's what this is describing in Romans chapter 1. Yuck. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Good description. I'll buy it. Idolatry and narcissistic behavior are companions in a godless approach to life. So idolatry and narcissistic behavior, they go together, and they take us away from empathy. Rick, this is why the gospel doesn't fit in this world. Yeah. But is it obsolete? See, that's the question. And the answer is no, it's not. We just need to be able to rise above the things that are happening around us. Leadership inherently invites personal pride to well up and distort that which is sacred to become that which is arrogant. Well, Rick, without true humility, whatever empathy we have is going to go awry. Yeah, yeah. And, and the Apostle Peter describes this very clearly. First Peter chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 3, then we're going to go on to 4 to 7 in a few minutes. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Let me stop right there. Peter could have said, I'm the one who brought the gospel to you, or I'm the one that gave that great sermon at Pentecost. But no, he is simply saying, I'm a fellow elder. That's humility. Continuing in verse 1, and witnessing of the sufferings of Christ and partaking also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an examples to the flock. And Peter was saying, give because you want to, with no thought of getting in return. That's what leadership is to look like. And that's where empathy actually can come from, if we have that kind of an attitude. Peter, of all men, was well qualified to teach the early church leaders humility because he had to himself learn it. For leadership to be effective and transformative, the leader must have their fingers upon their own pulse just as much, with just as much intensity as they have the, uh, their fingers upon the pulse of those whom they lead. Let's go continue with 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's do verses 4 to 7. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, meaning haughty, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Exaltation comes when? 
where and if the Father deems it necessary. So we can't say to God, okay, I did a good deed today, I'm waiting. Um, you know, did you see that? Uh, you know, let's, let's keep it down a little bit so the people don't get over, overjoyed too much, but I need to be recognized. That's not what it is at all. But unfortunately, we seem to get stuck in this thing. Hum- humble Christians rely on God to lift them up in an appropriate and God-honoring way. And, just, and like you said, when and if it's appropriate in a God-honoring way. And if it's not appropriate, wonderful. Praise God for that inappropriateness, and let's keep trying and keep moving forward. So, Jonathan, as we're looking at humility and the question of the gospel, is the gospel relevant or obsolete? What do we have? The gospel requires humility in those who will follow its message. Our world, more often than not, encourages a brash and arrogant attitude in those who will follow its causes. As our social discourse becomes even more toxic, we can see that empathy, true humility-driven empathy, is blatantly absent. The humility of the gospel is relevant. And Rick, the gospel isn't obsolete, though it is uncomfortable to the world. Yeah, and, and you know, it comes down to, like, you, you need to rehabilitate your knee because you blew it out and you got to wear a brace and that brace hurts and it's going to hurt and it's going to hurt and you don't want to wear it, but it's healing. The, the pain is healing. And the relevance of the gospel is actually for the healing of the world to set an example in a world that doesn't want or like the example. So humility-driven empathy seems so simple and yet is hard to apply because it requires me to let go of me. What effect does a lack of humility and empathy have on our ability to adhere to any kind of moral code? Defining morality is a massive part of our social media culture. When we look at the relevance of the gospel in our world today, perhaps the most obvious area of divergence is in regard to moral codes. This world is a free-for-all morally, while the gospel comes complete with an intact and detailed moral code. Round peg, square hole, right? It's not going to fit. Yeah, you know, and that, that, that's a good phrase, round peg, square hole. It isn't going to fit, but it doesn't mean that we don't work with it anyway. Our second primary building block of the gospel is morality, having a clear-cut code that defines right and wrong. And it's so important to have something that is clear-cut. Christians are overwhelmingly instructed as messengers of the gospel to follow righteousness as defined by God. How do we know that? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlists him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And that is such a simple statement. You can't win by cheating. Now, some people argue you can, but that's not the point. The point is you're not supposed to be able to win by cheating. And with the gospel, that's the way it works. You have to have this high level of morality. That's what uh, the Apostle Paul is teaching to Timothy, to determine where our moral standards should come from. We as Christians should aim to have this type of morality, the you-can't-win-by-cheating type of morality, and all-out dedication and belief as a model for our daily lives. The rules of what? 
of the gospel. Right, and that's the key. It's not the rule. The rules of the gospel according to Rick. No, that's not the way it works. It is the rules of the gospel of Jesus Christ as written in the scriptures. Period. That's it. You don't need any more description than that. We need to understand it. So as messengers of this gospel, we find empathy, going back to empathy, to be a key to understanding those around us so as to be able to potentially show them a higher morality in a higher way. If we can truly apply the two parts of empathy that we discussed, we can actually help lift people out of lower standards of morality into the Christian standards of morality. Let's go back to Dr. Romani and look at the, or listen to the, positive power of empathy. Empathy, when used correctly, gives us a lot of information about the other person. It teaches us the sorts of triggers for sadness, the kinds of things that anger them or agitate them, the things that they feel anxious about, and any number of other situations or triggers that bring out strong emotions in a person. So you can put empathy to work, Jonathan, and it's going to teach you about the person that you're actually reaching out to if you pay attention and decide to learn the lessons. That's the positive power of empathy. And by doing that, we can take and help them see a higher way, a higher level, a higher morality. That's all good. Now let's look at the other side because, Jonathan, every time we look at the good part, we've got to look at the world we're in. The other side of the moral coin is when we decide to make morality fit our own agenda. It's all about me, what I think is right, and don't judge me because it's about me. While we look at our world now and lament how shockingly far this has gone, it's important to remember that this kind of thing, again, is nothing new. And we talked about that last segment. What we find with these subjects, Jonathan, is it's a repetition, although we're going deeper and deeper into the darkness every time we repeat history. But listen to this scripture in Isaiah 5, verses uh, 18 to 23. We're going to stop after 19, then we'll take the rest of it in a minute. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as with cart ropes. Let me stop right there. That's a picture of dragging sin behind you with ropes. Come along, sin. Yep, don't dawdle. Continuing. (laughs) (laughs) Who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. You know, Rick, it sounds to me like they're saying, let God show us plainly and then we will follow. It it sounds arrogant. It is. It is arrogant. And that's the point. And you'll see what Isaiah says in, in a moment. But, you know, this in a way reminds us of the Pharisees at the cross telling Jesus to come down and then we'll believe you. They said that in Matthew 27, 41 and 42. So Isaiah is going to continue and it's, it's going to get worse. But, you know, think about the Pharisees here for a moment. What audacity they had to say that after all the miracles he showed them, no matter what evil was thrown at him, Jesus stood his ground. He did. And not only did he stand his ground against the evil, but while he was doing that, while he's hanging there in such pain, he witnessed to the two thieves that were around him. And while he's dying, he makes sure that his mother is taken care of while they are giving these insults to him. That's the empathy. That's the high moral code. He looked at them, and I'm Jonathan, I know that he looked at them and thought, I'm dying for you. I'm dying for you just like I'm dying for those who love me. And he understood the power of his sacrifice. That's where we want to go. However, 
Let's go back to Isaiah to the dark side of this moral code. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Well, Rick, we see this today. Evil is all around us. How much worse can it get? <laughs> don't say that. Don't ask that because I, I don't want to know because I know there's an answer. Uh, I don't know what it is. But, you know, again, the question, is the gospel obsolete? Folks, it's not obsolete, but it certainly is out of place because it's so different than the world. But just because it's different doesn't mean we should ignore it. We don't back away from that which is righteous. So for those who twist and subvert, there's a negative power of empathy as well. And, you know, we're talking about the narcissistic behavior. Let's go back to Dr. Romani again. As she talks about now, we, we, we heard the positive power, the positive advantages you can get from empathy. In, in, in the context of, of misuse of morality, let's listen now to some of the negative power that empathy can have if we are looking to fulfill our own desires. If you study that carefully enough, you better believe that you can then use that knowledge to manipulate that person. If you know what gets a rise out of that person, creates emotions out of them, if you're the narcissist and you're aware, which is empathy, of the other person's emotional state, when you need it, you can turn around and use that as a weapon, as a tool, as a way of manipulating them, as a way of getting a rise out of them, and then turning around and gaslighting them and saying, you're being too sensitive. Man, that stinks. <laughs> but, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's so easy to do that. And you can pause to just listen enough to turn it against them. And they become vulnerable, and you take that vulnerability and you crush them with it. That, that's not the way we're supposed to be. Our morality is supposed to be so much higher than that. So we're, we have a standard that is higher than the standard of the world around us. Now look, every single person is not like this. Everybody is not evil and dark like that. We all try. But these are the things we all have to be careful of. We have to be wary of. And we know that because Christians have these challenges as well. Let's look at James chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Well, I think it's interesting that the American Standard Version says sin when it is full grown. And in the Amplified Version, it says when sin has run its course. Continuing in verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So James, remember, is writing this to Christians, and he's saying we're tempted when we're enticed by our own desires. Doesn't that sound like that narcissistic tendency we're talking about? So James is saying, strive to that higher level of morality. Don't be stuck in the way the world deals with things. Stand up for something higher, bigger, stronger, better, wiser, clearer, more compassionate. 
And that is why we need to hold on to, to cling to the gospel in every aspect of our lives, because sin always brings chaos and collateral damage with it, and eventually it brings death. Here's the thing. In terms of morality, God knows the difference between right and wrong. There's a newsflash for you, right? <laughs> his knowledge is far above ours, and his, he has clear objectives in his actions. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 11 to illustrate this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. I mean, Again, Rick, round peg, square hole, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, round peg, square hole. Absolutely, it doesn't fit. That doesn't fit in this world. God is a God of compassion. And when he says, my word will go out and it will accomplish that which I sent it to do, we need to believe in that and hold on to that. And even when we're uncomfortable in this world that doesn't like the things that we stand for, it doesn't mean that the gospel is obsolete. It's simply a round peg in a square hole, and we're here to be tested on how well we handle that and how well we are an example of that higher morality of that application of humility and empathy. God allows man's immorality for the purpose of teaching us how futile our own made-up ways are. Absolutely. So for those of us who truly want God's morality in our lives, we need to see it as the overriding influence. God's morality is the overriding influence in all of our decisions. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verses 2 to 6. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And Rick, this reminds me of James 4.3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Yeah, you know, my ways are clear in my mind. It's like, yeah, you know, I got this right, but it says, but God weighs my motives. Oh, really, Rick? What, what, is, what is your real deep, deep, deep motivation? Read verse 3. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So if your works are absolutely committed to the Lord's will, then the plans will be established because you're after only righteousness. Verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. So we're being told that immorality, taking it into our own hands, has absolute consequences. And finally, verse 6. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Well, Rick, loving kindness and truth is who Jesus was, is, and will be. And we need to adhere to that morality. So we don't fit in this world, but it doesn't matter. It's not that we're obsolete. It's that we're living up to something that's higher to be an example. Gospel, relevant or obsolete, Jonathan? The gospel and its morality are far above that of any morality of human design because the vast majority of the world categorically denies God's morality. It serves as a point of comparison for our broken and selfish ways. This comparison will be used in the future's reconciliation of humanity. The morality we learn from the gospel is relevant. 
And Rick, I'd have to add, it's not obsolete. It's not. It's not. It just is not comfortable. And just because it's not comfortable doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And we have to, as Christians, remember that. Even though morality related to the gospel is presently held in disdain, it's comforting to know its future importance. How does discipleship, our third gospel building block, work together with humility and morality? So, we preach the gospel, which is the good news of the kingdom. In preaching this message, we need to be its humble representatives who live as an example of a higher morality than this world is comfortable with. All these things, all these things are a function of being an actual footstep follower of Jesus himself. Not being a fan of Jesus, but being an actual footstep follower, and whether it's comfortable or not, we continue moving and walking forward. Our third primary building block of the gospel is discipleship. The sole purpose of a Christian disciple is to learn how to be the best and most complete reflection of Jesus in your life. That's a pretty big sole purpose, <laughs> learning to be the best and most complete reflection of Jesus in our lives. Well, let's look at it again. Jesus himself chose to abandon his own will. Now, remember, we're focusing in on discipleship here. He chose to abandon his own will as a man whenever the will of God stood above it. We're going to look at two scriptures here. First, we're going to look at Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, which is a prophecy looking forward to Jesus' attitude. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You know, and you read that and you think, yeah, yeah, I do too. Yeah, that's me too. And it sounds wonderful and it, and it sounds, almost sounds like, oh, of course. You know, it's, it's like, kind of like a given until we have to apply it. And then when we look at Jesus' life and we look at the night of his deepest trial— and we see how he applied it. Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Rick, that is selfless. That is the example. If we are disciples, that's what we want to learn. That's what we want to reflect in our, in our daily lives. Not easy. Remember the rich young ruler? He was enthusiastically faithful to the law. Jesus saw this. Jesus knew his heart was good, but he knew that his earthly attachments were just far too significant. Let's look at Mark 10, 21 to 23. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it'll be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. But Rick, his attachment to earthly things was too great. Round peg, square hole. Yeah, again, again, it fits very well, because he was close, but he just wasn't able to let go. And that's what discipleship is. And that's why the gospel feels like it's obsolete, but it simply is different. And we, again, need to stand up for something higher. And Jonathan, you know what? This whole lesson is not complicated. It really isn't. 
It's a simple right and wrong scenario for a Christian. Am I going to live higher or not? Am I going to be that round peg that doesn't fit in that square hole and say, by God's grace, I get to be that round peg? I hope so. That's the idea. We don't want to fit into this world. Notice that in that in that example with the rich young ruler, Jesus didn't say it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom, but he did say it's difficult. Why? Our hearts must be willing to let go of earthly possessions, and if our heart is so positioned to be able to let go, God often will give us stewardship of those possessions to use in his service. We are not our own. Our things are not ours. We are dedicated to a higher purpose. We are, and it's important that as a disciple, we realize, no, we're not about an obsolete teaching. We're about a different teaching, a higher teaching that doesn't fit into the context of the environment, but is here, nevertheless, for the good of those around us. Having said all that, all the good stuff about discipleship, let's look at the negative side. On the negative side, this kind of selfless and sacrificial discipleship is completely frowned upon today. Think about how Christianity has been so misrepresented, and and think about the, the, the leadership that continues to feed that misrepresentation. Unfortunately, this narcissistic type of approach from leadership, within Christianity even, has a direct influence on its followers. One more visit with Dr. Romani regarding narcissism, and she's going to talk here about a narcissist's use of empathy. See, doesn't uh, being a narcissist narcissist doesn't mean you can't have empathy. It means you can have it, but you just use it for your own purposes. You're not using it to help someone, using to build yourself up to make it all about you. So here it is, a narcissist's use of empathy. Because narcissists often just say and do what they want without thinking, that absence of empathy. The problem is that they hurt a lot of people. Because it's not that they have no empathy, they've got some, they know they've done something wrong. And two hours later, six hours later, 24 hours later, five weeks later, may come back to you to say, yeah, I can see how that made you upset, or I guess I'm sorry I said that. The apologies are kind of hollow, but they are apologies because they get that they did something wrong. But in the moment, their selfish, impulsive need means that they're willing to throw all that empathy stuff out of the window to do what feels right and necessary to them at that moment. Jonathan, that is just a sad, sad testimony. And, you know, you look at that and you say, man, how can that possibly be within, within the Christian community? And I can give you an example, unfortunately. An example, a dear, dear friend and sister of ours, her name was Sister Mickey, she passed away several years ago, but she, was, she went to a specific church, and in that church it was, about, it was about giving. It was about tithing. It was about making sure you give. Now, she was, a, she was disabled, and she was on a fixed income. And I know what the income was. I'm not going to say the number, but it was pathetically low. And she gave and she gave. And the blessings that they promised never happened. And she would say, I don't understand. I'm giving. Well, you need to give more. And that's, that was the answer. And she would give to the point of not having food and finally left the church when she realized that this wasn't the way of the gospel. But you know what? The preacher wore $400 shoes. She couldn't even feed herself. Let's think about that. Let's think about what happened there. That's the dark side of all of this. 
This is why we have to stand for the gospel that's not obsolete, but it is different. Let's look at this example in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The Apostle Peter, again here, is being very specific, and it's scary what he's saying. False prophets arose from among people, and it's going to be like that with you. From within yourselves, these false teachers come with the sensuality of following them, following them, following them. Folks, this is not what the gospel is. The gospel is not obsolete, but it doesn't belong there. It's different. It's higher. It's selfless. It is discipleship. It is a high moral standard. So we need to understand that the darkness surrounds us, but that's not an excuse to let up. We have to stand for something higher. So contrary to the way this Christian in name-only approach teaches, we're given Fortunately, very clear, very concise direction. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What is good and acceptable and perfect? Isn't it walking in Jesus' footsteps, doing what he did, treating others the way he did? You know, and and we can say, yeah, but, you know, we're in the 21st century, so, you know, you've got to get up to speed. Absolutely you do. And you do exactly the same thing that you just said in the 21st century world. You have the same humility, the same selflessness, the same true empathy on both sides of the issue so that you can actually stand for other people and not be about you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the key. This spiritual transformation is for the purpose of living your discipleship in an unfriendly world. That's what we're faced with, an unfriendly world. First Peter, we're doing a lot of talking about Peter today because he understood. He understood what it was like to stand out in a crowd in a way that really wasn't uh, complimentary to him. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Ulrich, in thinking about this phrase, not being conformed to our former lusts, but be holy for I am holy. It, it doesn't mean we won't make mistakes and revert back to old habits. It's how quickly we recover and realize our mistakes and move forward in our discipleship. This is not saying we have to be perfect. We just need to have the right heart intent and desire to be the disciple God wants us to be. It's a struggle and it isn't always easy. Humility bounces right back there from where we started in our conversation. Just keep getting up and fix what needs to be fixed. Don't allow the gospel to become obsolete. So, Jonathan, you're trying to tell me round peg square hole, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) 
So, and, and really, that's what it boils down to. Discipleship and its necessary suffering are an important process. It is a round peg in a square hole. It makes us worthy through Christ to be trusted with a glory that's beyond human comprehension. Our final verse, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 18. For all who have been led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Rick, let's really think about this gift. We are adopted into God's spiritual family. That's incredible. We call him Abba, which means daddy. This is such a privilege to have an intimate relationship with God. Round peg square hole, isn't it? <laughs> Let's continue with verses 17 and 18 from Romans 8. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's interesting that Jesus had to suffer all of that, and then he was given this incredible glory. Discipleship says, follow in the sufferings and let God bless you in his time and his way. That's really what it boils down to. We are called to be children of God, to be joint heirs with Christ, by way of suffering for a short time, because we are his disciples in a world that doesn't like it. But it doesn't matter what they like. It matters what we are called to do. Be a follower, not the centerpiece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get rid of that, that, that narcissistic approach that we all can have inside of us and say, I am going to do what Jesus did as best as I can the way he did it. Final point, Jonathan, gospel. Is it relevant or is it obsolete? The gospel and its call to discipleship is all about putting the highest things first and yourself last. Our social media society is all about putting yourself first and then joining in with whatever causes fit into your life. This comparison just shows how lost our world is. True discipleship is relevant. It's a relevant ray of life and hope in a world gone mad. And that is the key. Our world has gone mad. It's off the rails. And so when we look at it, folks, and we say, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? The question we have to ask ourselves is, okay, well, I stand for something, but that something doesn't seem to fit. And the answer has got to be, so what? If it doesn't fit, good. That means as long as it's, I'm, I'm, I'm following the gospel in a righteous way, I'm following something higher and better. It's not that you look down on those around you. It's that you say, come up higher. Look at the hope in Christ and see a, a way that can, can, can live up to higher standards. The gospel is not obsolete in this world by any stretch of the imagination. It's important. It's an example. But that example won't be there unless you and I decide to make it so by the way we live. Live the gospel. Live as a disciple of Jesus and make a difference. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, God is out of my life. 
how do I get him back in? It's a question a lot of us have. God is out of my life. How do I get him back in? Talk to you next week.